0: I think God has been saying that there's seeds of a movement in this room. There, there's the seeds of a movement. Oh, I, 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 I look at your kids and how they can attract other kids. Now, they might detract other people, <laughs> but I think uh, you have a, an army in those kids, but you also are mighty people of God. I mean, I look at the talent in this group, the the understandings of God, the understandings of the church, the understandings of ministry. You know, my, my hope is that this little diamond of ministry might give you a framework for thinking about developing what we would call an incarnational movement. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That's our God. And our prayer is that that God begins to work in this fellowship and you become God's missionary people. Now, in the core of this diagram, in the core of this diamond, are people of peace, people ready to listen. They are receptive people. There are people we walk along and we begin to say, hey, let's go, let's go. We are like Jesus who says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. These are people who will not reject. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So we begin to walk alongside of, of these people. And, you know, the thing that... Most people of your age set, I'm talking about in African terminology, age sets, and you like gracious hospitality. We call people together and we share, and we go to their homes and they come to our homes. We go to their arenas and they come to our arenas. And so there's this gracious hospitality. You know, I, I think the hardest thing about this is kingdom witness. Because sometimes we are afraid to give the kingdom. And, you know, Jesus led with the kingdom. I mean, he came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come, something is breaking in. And it's out of that that he began to do these things. Parables of the kingdom that people listen to and they thought, what does that mean? Uh, it was evocative. It kind of grabbed the heart. And, you know, we see this brokenness of culture. And how can we not minister to the brokenness of culture? And that's what social justice is. It might be worked out informally or it might be worked out organizationally or somewhere in between. But I I think that social justice usually is worked out heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul within a community of the church. But the thing we're talking about in the few moments that we have tonight is expectant prayer. Because what expectant prayer does is ignite it all. I mean, you have the seeds of a movement, but the seeds of that movement begin when you begin to pray... For your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and it kind of holds your heart, and you see the the, brokenness of the world, and you begin to be kind of a person who can pray over people. I mean, that's expectant prayer. Um, I think about Luke chapter 11 in which the apostles had watched Jesus pray. And they came to him and said, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. And he gave, in Luke um, uh, 11, the Lord's Prayer. Somewhat like it's in uh, Matthew chapter 6. It's... It's the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, I, 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 I'd like to just go through Luke just a second, very briefly. I mean, Luke chapter 4, verse 44, and he kept on, um, no, what's the passage, 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Uh, let, me, let me give you those verses here. Uh, Luke chapter 4:42, Jesus went out to a solitary place. That's kind of the first statement about that. And then we flip the page to chapter uh, 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, um, Jesus spent all night praying to God and when morning came he went down to his disciples and out of those disciples he chose twelve to become his apostles and then he began to go out on mission note the mission of God was created because there is an all night of prayer of of Jesus to his father, and then he went out and he began to select people to go on mission with him. You know, I I used to say, uh, and and I'll revise this a little bit, I used to say the most impactful prayer was Jesus before, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and uh, I'd like to go to chapter 22, 29. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Another gospel calls it the Garden of Gethsemane, which is connected to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus knew he was going to die. He said, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond and knelt down and prayed. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, what Jesus was about to do. He was about as a perfect man, divinity. He was going to go into hell into the place of satan on our behalf and and break the shackles of satan over death and yet he knew the pain i mean just divinity becoming humanity was enough But now humanity is going to the arena of Satan to break the shackles of Satan. And it says, And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he went back to his disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. He said, why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? you got the seeds of a movement in your midst. Jesus has died. And so he said to these people, get up and pray that you do not fall into temptation. Those are such good prayers. But the most significant prayers to me are in uh, chapter 23. He's on the cross. And Jesus says, verse 34, Father, forgive them. For they, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. But then the greatest prayer of all is the last words of Jesus. When Jesus says in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I try to, you know, maybe once a week kind of use that prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, today, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I don't say that on the same level that Jesus said that. Because Jesus was basically saying, I'm going to die. And I'm I'm committing myself into your hands to bring me back, to raise me up, to be with you. Oh, God, I belong with you. I mean, that's why death was so bad. It was alienation for God. That's why living in sin is so bad. It's alienation with God. That's why the seeds of a movement have to be right here in this room, because people are alienated from God. And the seeds of mission is expected prayer. In all kinds of levels, on all kinds of dimensions. Uh, I, I think about the early church, that the early church was focused on prayer. Uh, so, the early, a, a group of people were, you know, God in His Holy Spirit began to work in those 11 apostles and the one added to them and the 120, and they began to pray. And God in His Holy Spirit came and broke into the world. They began to know under God what Christ was all about and was able by the Holy Spirit to preach the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So God began to break in and when God began to break in, lives began to change. That's why expectant prayer is so important because it's connected to the kingdom of God. It's connected to how we do gracious hospitality. It's connected to social justice. It's connected to the very fabric of who we are, But because when we pray, we are enthroning God as the King of kings and the Lord of the lords, and we say, there is no other. And as we move into people's lives, then we begin to speak in that type of way. So... Um, the church was being persecuted. It was launched in persecution. And perhaps that's why the largest movements in the world today are in Iran and China. Where it is tough. And so, in chapter four twenty-nine, these persecuted people says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus after they prayed the place that they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the holy spirit and they spoke the word of god boldly and that is what expectant prayer is all about prayer is basically a turning to god it's the kingdom It is enthroning God as God. It's conversion. It's a conversion from I can do it myself to God, I need you. It's a transition of life. So, um, how does this work out? My doctor is Dr. Kapil. Uh, She's of an Indian heritage. Uh, She kind of knew about us. I mean, the, the thing she knew was our home church was the Riverside Church across the parking lot. And uh, and uh, we kind of spoke into her life. But things began to happen in her medical practice. I don't know if I've told you this story, Charles. Things began to happen in her, in her medical practice. They said somebody opened a ghost app. And... Things began to move on the walls. Somebody died there in that practice. And the spirit was still there. Things were moving on the walls. And, you know, uh, early one morning, Dr. Kapil called me. I don't think I've ever had my doctor call me before. And she said, let me tell you, everybody here is living in fear. Everything is, everybody's living in fear. And she told me these kinds of things. And uh, Becky and I didn't have anything going at lunch. I said, "Let, let us come over at your lunchtime today. And we called a man who was a chiropractor just down the hallway who is an elder at the Riverside Church, but was a deacon at that time, and asked, could you join us? And She made sure that at 1230 the office was closed and the door was locked and she had her staff there. And so we we asked them to tell the stories and you could feel the tension. You could feel that things were not well. And I shared with them some things from Deuteronomy about the role of the satanic. I shared with them some things about Colossians, about how God breaks the shackles of Satan. And, you know, who am I to do anything? I'm I'm a human. I I don't have anything in my hands. Now, I had been in Africa for 14 years. Uh, I had learned that our God is a mighty God. This was not the first time I had experienced anything like this. So I kind of read a couple passages and said, this, this, is, this is what is happening. And, and we basically says, only by the power of God can this be cured. And so I was really proud of the deacon who was hearing these passages and he joined right in. We put our hands on them. You know, our, I have kind of a hard time with hands because sometimes it, people might think it's by some power in, in hands that this happens. But... I do feel that there is the authority that we, on behalf of God, lay our hands, and God's hands then are there. I'll say more about hands later. And uh, so we prayed, and then we walked with them through each of the rooms of the clinic, and we prayed over each of those rooms. Now, I don't necessarily believe that Satan and and the demonic world kind of r- lives in rooms that we can, we can pray and it's all gone. But that's how they felt. And, you know, maybe that's true. I mean, how do we know the spiritual realm? So we prayed through that medical practice. And Dr. Kapil testifies every time we're in, it's all gone. It's all gone. That's the power of God to clean up lives. And that's the first entree of many people to the kingdom of God. Um, if I can get the next. It doesn't want to come off the doctor here. Am I going the wrong way? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the demonic, uh. <laughs> uh, there, there's such practical ways that that prayer we, we did a neighborhood gathering uh, we we had uh, we've done a, ne- a number of things in our neighborhood but we did a cookout and our next-door neighbor uh, and uh, his friend back behind did a lot of the cooking, and we had chairs. Somebody brought music. And, and uh, my wife is such a spiritual giant. And I, I guess I have to confess this. One of the neighbors had kind of grown up and kind of a heritage that he was really resistant. And I discerned it was important for Becky to pray over the neighborhood. And so here we had about 40, 50 people. And, and my wife, Becky, if you know her, she's pretty soft-spoken. But she prayed over the neighborhood and asked for God's blessing over the neighborhood. And, and it was amazing the number of people who came up. Oh, that's, that's important. That's important. You, you see, prayer is a turning to God. Prayer is a statement that our neighborhood can't take care of it itself. Prayer, thus, in a certain sense, is a a sermon, but more than that, it is the work of God to transform our neighborhood. And so, it puts God up front. So, um, I guess I would say, we are always praying People, praying with people. We're laying our hands on them, but our hands are not powerful hands. You know, it's, it's amazing to me when I was in Montevideo at ACU's campus abroad, how many churches had brought the cult phenomena into their churches. And the Benny Hinn things going on. So I have Benny Hinn on one side and he's walking down and he's he's touching people and everybody falls over. I mean, what is happening today is there's a certain kind of prayer in which it is not of God but it is camouflaged and it takes place in somewhat of extreme movements. So, I think there's a big difference between prayer in which we depend on God and we are enthroning Him as Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we invite people into that relationship that we have in God. But we shy away from that extremism in which... The power then is in us. And we become the practitioners. And then some other kind of thing begins to operate within that arena. Um, the paradox. Oh, I'm, I'm running out of time here. The paradox. Let's go further. The paradox is... Um, why doesn't God answer all prayers? I mean, that's the book of Job. I mean, Job has everything. Then he loses it. He begins to question God. His friends begin to question Him. It is a major book on pain and suffering and the role of Satan and the struggle to understand it. I don't understand it all. I'm a human. Uh, I know. I mean, I've lost my oldest son in an accident. I struggle with that. And my very gracious, godly wife has retinitis pigmentosa. And as you've probably noticed when we're in the fellowship, while her spiritual insight goes up, her physical insight goes down. And we have prayed over her. We have prayed that God would take it away, and uh, it, uh, it, it brings me to this um, let me find if I can find it uh, this passage in second uh, Corinthians Paul had a thorn in the flesh he says There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? I mean, some people have thought maybe it's eyesight. So maybe it's what Becky has. I don't know. But Paul did have some kind of thorn in the flesh. And it was defined as an instrument of Satan to hinder him. And how do we know how God works and how Satan works and and the influence of sin and brokenness? And so we live with this great understanding that our God works miracles, but He doesn't always work miracles. He is Creator God. But he has also allowed Satan during this in-between times in in, in a, a way that he's operating. And we as humans are caught in between and all we need to say is, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And rest in that confidence... All the ambiguities. I didn't say that right. Ambiguities. Okay. All the ambiguities of life that we can't sort it out. We, we, we don't understand it all. But I, I would like to say our God is a miracle-working God. And the catalyst Lord, making this a movement is partly embedded in our praying with people and walking with people and listening to people and bringing the kingdom parables into people's lives and having that gracious hospitality that brings them all together in uh, the context of, uh, I guess... Um, Uh, You got another slide there or not? Maybe we live up in relationship to God. In an intimate community and out on mission. So finally, I'd like to conclude with a passage from Acts 26. This is Jesus' words to Saul on the road to Damascus. He says to Saul... I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. Uh, that's, That's another type of great commission, isn't it? It's, it's a great commission, and note the so that, so that they receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In this assembly, there are Barnabas's and Saul's, and may God in His Holy Spirit raise you up to be messengers. And I'm so thankful to be part of this fellowship. I'm I'm here every once in a while. I give glory and honor and praise to God who leads us forward, to God who shapes us.